live from the Astrodome in Houston, Texas, the tennis battle of the sexes, Billie Jean King versus Bobby Riggs. Last week, one of the signature events in Houston sports history celebrated its 44-year anniversary. I think it's maybe last week or two weeks ago now, but there's a new movie out in movie theaters, Battle of the Sexes, depicting the Bobby Riggs Billie Jean King matchup in the Astrodome. I'm talking to you just a, actually a few yards away, not too far away uh, from the Houston Astrodome right now where it all happened. And with me is Dale Robertson from the Houston Chronicle, who actually was there and covered the event. And Dale, what, what do you remember about that day? Well, it was crazy. It was crazy. It was, uh, it was, you know, I, I was obviously a very, very young uh, sports writer. I had never seen a tennis match live in my life, had never played tennis, never been around tennis. I was aware of tennis because of television, but showing up there, I thought, hmm, this is a really strange sport, but it was, it was fun. It was, uh, you know, it was, uh, you kind of had to know Houston back in that era to understand how it fit in perfectly. We were a place of spectacles. We had Portuguese bullfighting. We had heavyweight championship fights. We had crazy, weird track meets, all all staged because the Astrodome was a fascinating place. People, you know, we have to remember when this tennis match was played, the Astrodome was only eight years old and was still a big deal. It was the obvious place to play this thing. What we'll never know uh, is if had Bobby Riggs beaten Billie Jean, the story was that he already had a contract track to play Chris Everett, and would he have played Chris Everett at the Astrodome Tour, they've gone someplace else. But the reality is there was no venue like the Astrodome for something like this, and to this day it is still was still the largest attendance for a tennis match ever in the United States, a little over 30,000. People don't remember he had already played Margaret Court, the number one player in the world. He had challenged her, but the, the Billie Jean King with Bobby Riggs became bigger than life because of Bobby Riggs, and he, he was the constant showman, and just you know, there was so much that he did to, to build up that event, and the two of them did to build up that event. And Billie Jean King was in an interesting situation because if people don't know, that was right when Title IX had just passed. She had just gotten uh, worked on getting women's tennis becoming a professional uh, tour, a w- women's professional tour. Is that right? The previous year uh, at the U.S. Open, she became the first uh, woman to win $100,000 in a sports event. The movie makes a big deal about that, and I'm sure Bobby, Bob, you have to understand something, Bobby Riggs at that point in his life had been basically living, you know, the, the great irony is the, the great chauvinist uh, was basically a kept man because he was living with a very wealthy heiress who, frankly, had thrown him out. And uh, and there's a scene in the movie where he's sleeping in his Rolls Royce, which he won in a game, in, in, a, in a game of chance. Uh, I'm not sure that ever happened, but Bobby was not well to do, so it was it was a big deal. But he he understood that he understood the commercial potential of this thing. What a lot of folks don't realize is that. You know, the timeline in the movie is a little screwed up. We can talk about that in a moment uh, if you want. But Margaret Court was the number one player at the time only because Billie Jean was having knee problems and she hadn't played particularly well of late. So Bobby really had no choice but to play Margaret Court first because she was number one. You don't play number two. But Margaret Court had had the absolute worst temperament, the worst constitution for something like this. She wasn't a show person. Billie Jean at heart was also a was also a you know she understood show business and, and and she was much much tougher mentally than margaret court so it was a convergence of things that came, came together you know the astrodome and, and and the timing of the, the timing of the event was also perfect because virginia slims of houston tournament only the third one ever played here was scheduled for a uh, what what is now a jim mackinville's uh, uh, west side tennis and fitness but at the time it had just opened it was called net set racket club and that was going on that week, so she was going to be in Houston. So she actually had to take had to had to, had to juggle her schedule uh, 
uh, in the regular tournament uh, to make this happen. But, you know, they, truthfully, in understanding, uh, you know, everything that goes into a spectacle like this, the Astrodome was the only place it could have been played. Remind people why Houston was important for Billie Jean King at the time, because uh, I think you wrote in your piece just a couple of years before that, something really important happened. They, they made it out <laughs> in California, as you said. Explain what I'm talking about. Well, yeah, with, what they do with the movie is, and I understand why you do it, because you don't want to get bogged down in something that's not important to keeping the plot moving. And, and when you see the film, you're going to think that they, uh, the, the, the nine women, Billie Jean being among them, uh, met with a woman named Gladys Heldman, and they each accepted a symbolic $1 bill and became professional and were immediately immediately thrown out of the United States Lawn Tennis Association. At the time, women's tennis was an appendage to men's tournament. There were no separate men's and women's tournaments. Wherever there was a tournament, the women played on the outside courts. They might get on the, on the main court for the final, something like that, but they were tied together. Well, tennis turned professional in 1968, and by 1970, uh, there was starting to be a little bit of money coming, real money coming into regular tournaments, not just the majors. Uh, Jack Cramer, the former U.S. champion, was basically the godfather of American tennis, and he was very much a misogynist, and he was certainly a chauvinist. And uh, it came to a head in 1970 when the Pacific Southwest Championships, which was probably the second most important tennis tournament in the country behind the U.S. Nationals, which had become the U.S. Open, uh, he, he offered the, the, the women one-eighth the prize money that he was going to give the men. And Billie Jean, and with her friend Gladys Hellman, a uh, friend and mentor, uh, certainly on the business side, Gladys Hellman, who was living in Houston at the time, they said not only no, but hell no. So they held a uh, press conference uh, in uh, September of 1970, about three years before the Kings-Riggs match, where they announced that they were separating from the, the USTLA. They were going to be a professional circuit on their own. The nine women accepted the $1 bill. and But it happened here in Houston at the Houston Racquet Club, which itself was only a couple of years old at the time. Yeah, you won't see that in the film. In the movie, you're going to think, you're seeing, that you think they're doing it out in L.A., but it, it happened here. I want to ask you about the movie in just a second and, and, and what the portrayal was like and what you thought of it. But uh, let me ask you about the actual event itself and they portray, you know, there's a, uh, there's a pig involved. <laughs> but they got the pig wrong. It was it was it was a brown, it was a brown pig, not a white pig, which you'll see in the movie. It's a brown pig. I remember this vividly. So they get they were get. Uh, I guess Billie Jean presented Bobby with a pig right, as right, for right. chauvinist pig. Right, if if right. you don't get the reference there, and then you also have Billie Jean King is carried out by a, a bunch of guys on on her shoulder, and, and these guys, from what I understand, were. Rice University uh, co-eds. Well, that you know, were... you know, it's funny. I, you know, I, I only, I didn't know that. You know, here I was. I got, I got an email from my editor this morning asking if there's any way to find out who the four Rice track uh, track guys were. And I, I always thought they were just local models. They were obviously quote unquote hunks. I mean, I mean, it was, it was a spectacle. It was not, it was not serious tennis. And 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 obviously, people it did not change, it did not change the world. But it was a whole lot of fun. It was kind of like she was Cleopatra, I guess. Yeah, exactly. They were, they were exactly. bringing her out. Exactly. Of course, he and he was pay, He actually was paid a tidy sum by the sugar daddy uh, company to to, <laughs> to act to actually go on, to actually play in a sugar daddy warm up, which he kept on for about two or three games, which you'll see in the movie. But well, once he understood that Billie Jean was not going to be Margaret Court and roll over for him, he was getting. Get a little hot out here, so the, the jacket got <laughs> removed. And never, never did, never did find out if he actually got it, got the full sum for only wearing it for two or three games. But yeah, it was, you know, face it, it was, it was, it was Hollywood, 100 percent, right here in Houston, Texas. And Billie Jean King talked about the fact that she actually came to the Astrodome ahead of time just so she knew 
when she got here, which entrance to take. And, and her, right. she, she kind of knew her way around because, you know, this was a huge pl- – I mean, the Astrodome at that time was such a big – Well, it was an unusual venue. Nobody yeah. there – you know, the, the, the Louisiana Superdome was, was barely coming out of the ground at the time. Nobody – the Astrodome was a, was a unique structure in the entire planet for 10 years. And it was, you know, it was it was a big deal. And, and, and imagine how intimidating the surroundings would have been for anybody who allowed them to be intimidated. But understand something about Billie Jean. She had, you know, she'd won the U.S. Open, made $100,000. Now, understand she won two years earlier. She actually pulled out of the Open, uh, retired uh, from the 73 Open because she was sick with the flu. And there was much concern that she wasn't going to be able to answer the bell here in Houston. And obviously, a lot of money was at stake. Uh, not to get too digressy here, but she also uh, almost pulled out the day before when she found out that this jet, that Jack Kramer, her arch enemy, was going to be the commentator. She said he doesn't he doesn't like women's tennis. Doesn't respect us. I, I will not play if he's on part of the broadcast. And ABC buckled and pulled him, and ended up being Rosie Casals, who was one of King's playing partners and buddies, and uh, Howard Cosell. Let me ask you about a young Dale Robertson, and did you realize— I remember that- him. <laughs> I don't have to think on that one. Do you remember at that time thinking, you know, Billie Jean, look at this. She's sort of cut between a rock and a hard place on this thing because if she accepts the match— and, and you know, Bobby Riggs at the time is a guy in his 50s. There's, there's nothing she can win by beating a guy in his 50s, but yet if she doesn't accept the challenge— you know, she looks like, oh, I'm, I'm afraid of, of doing something like this, especially after Margaret Court. Did you think about that when you were watching well, this? Well, I, mean, pr- I probably didn't have a good enough perspective because I didn't have the long view then. I thought, you know, I was thought it was a bit of a bit of a kind of a kind of the whole thing was a bit of a joke. But uh, I did grasp uh, because I understood sports. That's how I ended up doing this for my livelihood. The kind of pressure she had to have been under, because because nobody ever wants to play a no win anything, and that's kind of where she was. Uh, and she wasn't playing just for herself. She was not, and she wasn't even just playing for the the, the tour that year. She was playing for the future of, of of women's professional tennis in the world, in her opinion. Because you know, in 1973, we we didn't know where it was going to go. Nobody had any idea. Uh, so yeah, I mean, there was a tremendous amount of pressure on her, but it also speaks to, there was never any doubt how tough she was. I mean, she just was a tough cookie, you know, and, and there was, she was no nonsense. She wasn't funny. That's why she was somewhat a little bit ill-suited for this. Although having said that, she wasn't nearly as bad as Margaret Court, who was just totally out of her element. Uh, Billie Jean got with the program a little bit, but she was a hundred percent business for this match. Riggs wasn't. Uh, obviously, he after beating Margaret Court as handily as he had, he was certain he was going to win and win fairly easily. Although he knew that Billie Jean was a whole different kind of customer, and of course, and you know, we, we also there there have been stories that that Briggs actually threw the match uh, uh, to settle a gambling debt with debt with the mob. Well, nobody can say for certain, but I will say this: there are also stories that say that he had had on the table a contract. For the Chris Everett match, and understand, Chrissy was the future of American tennis, and not Billie Jean. Billie Jean was 29. Chrissy was the she was the sweet young thing, the cute kid. It was clear she was going to be the next great player, and so Bobby plays her. The stories were they had a, that was going to be a million dollar winner take all match. Now a million dollars is pretty serious money. Bobby Riggs was not that far in debt to anybody. This was a different time. Today you can be a million dollars in debt to a gambler. Then he wasn't. So I don't think he threw the match. I think he played his butt off. What struck you about meeting Billie Jean at that time? Because you, you, you talked to her right after that match, right? Well, what, what struck me was, uh, of course, I, you know, again, I was kind of part of just, uh, I was part of the press corps 
uh, a couple of days before the tournament, uh, the actual match and the match itself. I was just part of the part of the press conference, but uh, I was dispatched out to the net set the next day to talk to Billie Jean, and that was cool because you, you, she was she was an utterly spent force, but she could not have been more gracious and more expansive. And, you know, my memory is that I talked to her for 30 or 40 minutes privately. Now, that may be just delusional. I don't know. But that's my recollection. But what I do remember leaving leaving that day thinking, you know, this, you know, I'm going to love this profession because if there are any more Billie Jeans out there, this this is cool. Because, you know, she answered the bell on a competitive level. She was good people. She saw the long view. She, you know, she was on the side of right in terms of in terms of social issues. Uh, just, just the whole package. And frankly, she has remained, uh, I can't say a friend, a close friend, a friend, but, uh, she is somebody that when we cross paths, I don't see her a lot anymore because I don't travel internationally and covering tennis. But when I see her, it's, it's always a warm embrace and it's just, it's, it's, um, cool to watch her evolve as a person. And, and, and it's not, not for nothing is the, uh, Billie Jean, the national tennis center where the U S open played called the Billie Jean King national tennis center. And an underrated, uh, person as far as courage goes. Oh, God, of off sports. the charts, off the charts. Just an amazing athlete, amazing woman. You know, when I look back on uh, my years in the business, I mean, she's, she's right there. She's, she's on Mount Rushmore. What did you think of the movie? Do you feel like it did a, a, a nice job of portraying it for the most part? I'm sure, there, you, as you said, there's some things that are, it wasn't accurate, but overall. Yeah, well, the, the only, only quibble I have with it, and the only reason I even made a deal out of it is because I was writing it from a Houston perspective, and I want Houston to get, you know, I want Houston to get in the proper, you know, proper, proper place in the narrative. The film's actually, uh, you know, it, it's hard for me to separate myself from the film and say this is a really great movie because my perspective is such that I was, you know, predisposed to enjoy every minute of it because I knew the story so well. I think it's a really good movie. I think if you don't you know, don't know anything about it, I think you'll enjoy it. Uh, but then we start looking for other things to criticize. Okay, the tennis itself can't, comes off beautifully. They used they used a couple of body doubles. Uh, Vince Spadia is the uh, is uh, Bobby Riggs on the court. Spadia played here in Houston for many years. Uh, the tennis looks real, and that's important in a sports movie. We, we all nothing frustrates us more than to see bad. And tennis, for some reason, is always filmed badly in movies. But you, when you're watching the match, you're, you're you're kind of seeing what you were seeing. It's they recreated that. Uh, the story is honest in that it, it presents both Billie Jean and Bobby Riggs in, in, in nuanced ways. Uh, it, 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 it's very easy to, to call Rig, Riggs, uh, you know, a, a, you know, just a, an awful guy, but he wasn't. He was just he was just a guy trying to make a living. I mean, he had no money. Understand something about Bobby Riggs. He became famous in tennis when he won two U.S. Nationals in Wimbledon, but he won them right in the late 30s. Then what happened? World War II started. He had to go into the Army. He comes out. He's missed the five best years of his athletic career. There's no money in tennis. He could have gone. Had there been, he could have gone back and played and made some money. But at this point, he's yesterday's news. So he's, he's of no marketable value on the on the barnstorming surf. So from that point forward, he had to become a hustler, and it culminated in what happened here. So he 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 was not a bad guy. He was a very likable guy, and he was clown. He was a clown, but he was a, he was a clown for a reason. So yeah, I think the movie I think the movie gets it about as about as well as it could have gotten it. And it's uh, you know the casting's good. Uh, my one of my very very favorite characters, uh, uh, Sarah Silverstone, is the plays the. Uh, plays Gladys Hellman. Gladys Hellman was a hugely important person in the history of women's tennis and a hugely important person in Houston. And she did become a dear friend. And uh, we, we stayed close for many, many years. How big a part did this play because I, in, in your life because you have become such a huge tennis fan to this well, day? Well, it, it, it is ironic. Uh, there, wasn't, there wasn't a uh, direct line between my covering that. That basically got sent out there because I was 
kid reporter who, you know, I, I was sparable. I wasn't covering any, you know, I wasn't covering like the Oilers or the Astros. So I said, kid, you're going to go do this. This was the first tennis match you, you I had ever seen. Yeah. I mean, really. And believe me, I didn't. I, I, I literally uh, was assigned to cover a tennis match for the first time four years later. And they actually had to go talk to a tennis player just to get get some stuff explained to me. But it is ironic because I became known as, you know, like, Mr. Tennis in Houston. I covered 30 U.S. Opens. I covered 25 Wimbledons, 14, 13, 14 French Opens. But I can't say that it all started with that with that match. But I always chuckle about the fact that where where I was on the tennis spectrum of knowledge when I went out, came out here to the Astrodome in September of 1973 to how it all played out. Let me ask you this, just as far as the game of tennis as it stands right now, and, and maybe it relates a little bit to, to what happened with Billie Jean and, and women's tennis compared to men's tennis. Uh, I, I heard recently, I can't remember which tennis player said this, but they said, there's no reason why women's tennis and men's tennis shouldn't play the same number of, of games per match. You know, at best, they said, they said that it should be maybe best for men two out of three instead of three out of five instead of moving the women up to three out of five because, you know, for one thing, I, I think uh, maybe the, the, there's no point in, in doing three out of five for men. The, the, the matches are, are too long. It's not necessary. You're, you're wearing down players and, and causing them to have maybe shorter careers. They're not going to play as, in as many tournaments because of the wear and tear that it takes. Do you have a feeling well, on that? All, all of what you said makes perfectly logical sense, but then you, the counterpoint is, is, the, is that Rafael Nadal and Roger Federer have had longer careers than any great player in history. And truthfully, because today the, the men only play best three or five in, you know, in the four slams. I mean, all the other – they don't play any other matches that are right. other than two out of three. I, 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 th- I think – uh, tennis can become tedious, so there's an argument for making it shorter. There's certainly no reason to expect, ask the women to play more than they play. The matches were it's it's fine. There's good geometry there. I, you know, I I think the guys themselves like the challenge of you know four times a year, you know, having to dig down a little deeper and and the way because the tournaments are spread over two weeks, there's there's some rest, there's some rest time and there's a certain there's there is a certain majesty to watching one of those finals. Go go on for four and a half five hours. It really is. I, you know, the great, single greatest match I ever saw and covered was my last uh, Wimbledon in two thousand and eight when uh, Nadal beat uh, Federer, and it just a just an just a you know falling down, shaking your head. What an amazing athletic spectacle match! It was also delayed by rain and et cetera, et cetera. And so I, I don't. If you play two out of three, you're probably not going to get those plot twists and turns. Uh, that that you get from the, the when you get into that fifth set and no tiebreaker et cetera et cetera so yeah I'm okay with the way things are I there 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 were there were times when I c- was cussing it when I was trying to get to dinner but <laughs> <laughs> but I I, th- I think it's great I think just as much as we as much as we enjoy sudden death in the Super Bowl it's it's kind of the same thing <laughs> let me ask you about just uh, you know Serena everybody can agree on that she's the incomparable best female tennis player of all time. Who do you feel like is the best male? Where do you put the top three, you know, Federer, Nadal, uh, Pete Sampras? Those well, you know, the things we get into, of course, you know, trying to compare, you know, in any sport, athletes from different generations, a lot of factors go into it. Uh, I've always said that I would I would put the best players of every generation. I'd love to see them all be 26 years old at the prime of their careers and then play a tournament, then we'd find out, also using the same equipment. Uh, I, mean, I, I think we have no choice but to proclaim Serena the greatest. She's certainly the physically strongest, but... I, I don't know if she was better than uh, Steffi Graf and when Steffi Graf in 1988. I don't know if she was better than uh, Billie Jean in 1971. I don't know that because we'll never see them play. I mean, obviously, training methods, uh, the money has also made it infinitesimally easier 
for a, a Serena Williams or a Roger Federer to to pick their tournaments, to train. I mean, they don't have to worry about life. I mean, they have entourages. They're being taken care of because they can afford to have massage therapists. You know, my way I always ultimately end this end this uh, this conversation is uh, Rod Laver, who would certainly be on my on, in that draw. That draw. If everybody plays at their prime, Rod Laver would be in that in that mix. Rod Laver won the Grand Slam in 1962. I mean, he won all four major championships. Okay. Then he had to turn professional because he had to make a living. Sixteen years later, he's now a professional. He comes back in 1969, and he wins the Grand Slam again. Did not play a single professional tournament between, I mean, excuse me, a single major Grand Slam championship from 1963 and through early 1968. None. I mean, there's, do the math. That's he missed, what, 40, 50 tournaments. But he, he still ranks like eighth or ninth on the all-time list of Grand Slam champions because he won eight in those two years. How many would he have won? Tennis records mean nothing for that reason. And you can't. And the equipment is so dramatically different that they, they play a different game. Anyway, I digress here. I asked Rod, Rod, okay, and, and this is talking to Laver 15 years ago. He doesn't have Federer on his radar screen quite yet, but he certainly has Pete Sanford. So I says, who's the greatest player you've ever seen? He looked at me, didn't blink, and I'm thinking he might say himself. He said, Lou Hode. I went, Lou Hode? I mean, I mean, I'll bet most people listening right now have never heard that name. I haven't I mean, heard if it. you're a tennis guy, you, you understand who Lou Hode was. Same thing. Great Australian champion in the late 40s. As soon as he won, a, won a, he won a tournament, a title that allowed him to capitalize financially, he was out of here. He was done. He barnstormed for the next 15 years. In fact, when he, when he played Laver for the first time on the barnstorming tour, he, he beat Laver like 27 out of 30 matches. So of course Laver's going to say that. So who's to say Lou Ho's not the greatest player that ever lived? Yeah, of of the modern of the modern era, uh, I, you know, I'm just on on the strength of consistency and 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 everything. I've got to I've got to go with Federer, but it's a it's a it's a tough call, uh, almost an impossible call, and it's you can easily get argued talked out of it for the obvious reason is that Rafael Nadal has dominated that rivalry. So how is this guy a better player when this other player has beaten him two thirds of the time? If Rafa doesn't go through a period of knee injuries, I think he's probably neck and neck with Roger, and ultimately, ultimately, I think if you're really being honest and you look at it from that perspective, you've probably got to give the nod to Rafa. But, again, his titles are all skewed towards the French Open. He's got 10 of those. So uh, Federer's were more spread out, but he only won one French Open. So this conversation could go on for the next three hours without any without any resolution. Yeah, and there, and, and I remember I, I think there was somebody that was trying to get another battle of the sexes going between Serena. I'm trying to remember who they were talking about with her. So that, that this thing never seems to end. Everybody remembers the Billie Jean King and, and Bobby Riggs, but there's been these throughout the generations. Oh, no, yeah. I think Connors played Martina and, uh, with a different size court and all that. You know, at the end of the day, I mean, they, they understand something. that this, this did nothing to change society. It was, it was a lot of fun. I mean, it's pretty obvious in uh, the times we're living in right now that the issues that were, you know, bedeviling uh, uh, women in, in 1973 are still bedeviling women. So it didn't change that. But it, it, it was great. It was certainly great fun for a 21-year-old sports writer. Yeah, a great way to, <laughs> great way to start your career. And remind people that you, you can read about that story a little bit on, in the Chronicle. Yeah, you, if, you go, if you go to uh, uh, Houston Chronicle, the Houston Chronicle website and just add, or just type in, type in my name, the Chronicle, and Battle of the Sexes, the story will come up and you'll get my take on it. Yeah, just uh, beautiful uh, stuff. Uh, really interesting. I mean, it, you you can't get more <laughs> interesting than than that match uh, back then in 1973. Thanks so much for doing this. Dale. My pleasure. Always a pleasure to talk to you.
What a scene it is. The Houston Astrodome, where up till now they've played almost every sport in the world except tennis. For more interviews, subscribe to Houston Sports Talk on iTunes, or if you're an Android user, download our free Houston Sports Talk app in the Google Play Store. We're also available on Stitcher or the TuneIn app, and our website is HoustonSportsTalk.net.